0: Would you stand now for the reading of the inerrant and the infallible word of God? This morning from the Old Testament, I'll continue reading through Exodus, and this morning, Exodus chapter 13. And from the New Testament, I'll be reading from Hebrews, chapter 11, and I'll read only one verse, verse 27. Exodus 13, beginning with verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, Out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, You shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as He swore to you in your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your Son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand, or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand of the Lord, he brought us out of Egypt. And from the New Testament, the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter. Eleven, Verse 27, speaking of Moses, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Growth in this world is ordinarily a combination of divine, supernatural activity and human responsibility. Now I should have thought about that, should have known that, during those days when I bought this particular rose now I was going to frequent a favorite nursery of mine and and I had my eye on a particular a particular rose plant a rose bush and this rose bush was exquisite now it was exquisite not only in its, in its beauty and its rarity uh, but it is also exquisite in, in its price it was expensive and I couldn't afford it but I, I would admire, I would admire it. Well, one day a non-member had a uh, wedding, and this non-member gave me an honorarium that was quite nice, and, and it, it amounted to, wouldn't you, wouldn't you know it, the, the amount that I could pay for the rose. So, so I got the rose, and I had been anticipating uh, getting the rose, going to get it, so I prepared a place for Her Royal Majesty, and uh, near, near our home, I had a perfect place for it and had the soil amended, everything was just fine. And I, I plant, planted the rose. And uh, I stepped back and, and admired, admired it. Th- this plant, which I had, had coveted really, it was now a part of my yard, my garden. And it really was beautiful. And it stayed beautiful for several days. (laughs) The Lord sent the rain and the sunshine, but there are some other things that have to be taken care of, like... uh, pruning, making sure that uh, things like Rosetta uh, disease doesn't take out the entire thing, so cutting away the stalk, uh, making sure it gets fertilizer, making sure uh, the soil continues to be amended and stirred and gets enough oxygen to the roots, making sure that the limb that was overhanging has to be cut so it gets enough sunshine. In other words, human responsibility needs to be added to divine providence. And it wasn't. Now, if I were brought before a judge, I think the judge would look down and say, this is a case of Rosarian manslaughter, guilty. Maybe that's a little melodramatic uh, for my opening story. But growth happens both with divine, supernatural activity and human responsibility. It is that way with roses and it is that way with people. In the passage that we read, God instructs Moses and Moses talks to the people of Israel. This, in fact, is the last sermon, if you will, by Moses before the actual Exodus, before the people actually move out into the desert, into the wilderness to begin their journey. And he gives them a prescription for a comprehensive growth, a discipleship plan, if you will, that will not only strengthen them and create growth of faith for them, but will in fact transcend their own generation, move through all generations. And this has something to say for us today. Because we have been given the Great Commission. We are to go and to baptize and then we are to make disciples, teaching them whatsoever Jesus Christ commanded. That is our mission, that is the Great Commission, and that is to continue until the end of the age. This follows the kind of uh, transgenerational commandment that God gives, and it's an update Updating of uh, this one singular covenant of grace plan that God has in His His whole in His Word, which is unveiled to us in the Bible. And how are we to do that? Well, it involves it involves a comprehensive plan of both divine supernatural activity, the rain and the sun, if you will, but it also involves human responsibility. And God is telling us, he to- to- tells the Israelites, here's what you must do. Here's how faith will mature, if you will. And this becomes a lesson for us. Now, this is an important lesson of clarification, because in the Christian church there has sometimes been two extremes to the answer or to the question how does faith come and how does faith mature? how does it grow and how is it passed on and, and transmitted and how is it, uh, how does it grow within uh, families and, and how does this this uh, this nugget of truth. How is, it, how is the baton passed from generation to generation? And there is an extreme position on one side that says the, this vision of faith is ground, rightly so, in God's covenant. And there is, because of the federal headship of the head of house, generally the father, but it could be a mother, a single mother, because of this federal vision of headship. Therefore, any child that is born into this family, merely because of this, this, uh, this headship, is sort of born into not merely the privileges of faith, which would be a proper answer, but faith, and that is a distortion. And then there's the other extreme, which treats the children of believers, the which would go against Hebrews chapter, uh, excuse me, Exodus chapter thirteen, and would treat the children of uh, the Jews as if they were not children of the Hebrews. And they were just pagans. And they would not be brought into the privileges of the children of Israel. And it would just merely be hoped that like any other unbeliever, one day a crisis would occur and there would be an evangelistic moment and at that moment then the child would be converted. So the child grows up with a self-identity that I'm separated from God, I'm lost, and all I can hope for is that maybe there can be a sort of walk the aisle moment, and then I can be converted. Now both of these are extremes, and John Stott said the BBC wave, BBC, Basic Biblical Christianity, is generally there in, in the middle of the extreme. Not always, but it has elements of, of both of these because both of them have elements of truth, as extremes often do. And that's what we want to look at today. How does faith mature? And we're not going to gather this from church history or gather it from any other source, but directly from God's Word. And answer the question, how does faith mature in the life of an adult in my life, in your life, but how does faith mature in a family? How does faith mature in children? how does faith uh, uh, how is faith planted and then how is it grown in foreign lands, in others, through missions well let 's look at the passage, and there is a pattern, a process that is established and will call these steps in the process of how faith is born and matures. And first of all, it begins with the first step is consecration. Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Now, consecration is a powerful image in the scripture. Now, they had just come through. I didn't deal with the, the plagues, But they had just gone through these great plagues. And the greatest of the plague, the climactic plague, was God taking the firstborn of the Egyptians and the firstborn even of their their, uh, livestock. And now there's going to be a concurrent or equal consecration of the children of uh, the firstborn children of Israel along with uh, livestock. And it is getting at God showing how this has got to begin with faith begins with a total consecration of the, the, very, the very best that nothing comes before God. Now, Elder Frank was talking earlier about principles of giving, and the principles of giving in the Old Testament are based upon the doctrine of consecration. It's a tithe. The tithe is what? It's the first tenth. It's the first part of your income, and it's based upon this concept of consecration, your best. When a person comes to Christ, Christ is first, We give our heart to Christ. He's our everything. In fact, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the doctrine of consecration. He is God's firstborn, eternal son. And he fulfills the concepts of uh, the theological concept of consecration, of of being the finest and the very best, uh, of being the first part of what we have in life. Faith is not an afterthought. It's the first thing. And God is saying that I will be first in your life. He was telling Pharaoh, You've got to understand that when I speak, you don't have a choice. I will take the firstborn of your nation. And now he's telling Israel, the firstborn of your nation is mine in service. The firstborn of your livestock is mine in sacrifice. Faith begins with consecration. It's one of the reasons that we baptize uh, infants. It's not the only reason. It's one of the reasons we, that baptism exists at all, whether it's the baptism of infants or the baptism of an adult. It is consecration, the dedication of a person. And that is how faith matures. It begins, if you will, with totality. Totality. With God having liberated, remember, the first step is God's. God saves, and in response to that, we're looking at a human responsibility. What do we do? How does faith mature? We see that only God can save. God, the Holy Spirit, transforms just as God led them out of Egypt five times in these 16 verses, you will see the phrase, out of Egypt, out of Egypt, out of Egypt. Showing that God Himself is responsible for their salvation. But then the question, okay, well, what is our response? And the first response is consecration. And when I was a little boy, Before I was five years old, I had gone through some really difficult times. Don't need to elaborate. Very hard, hard things. And my Aunt Eva, who reared me, would say to me during those days, I don't know why these things have happened, son. But she'd say, Mike, I believe God's got his hand on you. Now that made a profound impression upon me, that in the midst of oppression, and we don't like three, four, and five-year-olds to have oppression, but in the midst of trauma, My Aunt Eva broke through with the trauma with the words of consecration. Putting her hand on my head and saying, I don't understand. But God has got his hand on you. And that began to give me meaning. And this is the power of consecration. Now, Moses moves from there to to something that's also very powerful. In verse 3, Moses says to the people, remember, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt. And so the second point or the second uh, step in the process of our human response to God's salvation and and the second uh, step in how faith matures is we could call memorial. So it moves from consecration to memorial. What is memorial? Here it was going to be the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is going to be tied to Passover. Passover will be the culmination of this this dramatic uh, period of unleavened bread which would always remind them of the hastiness in which they had to uh, get things together and move out. They didn't even have time to leaven the bread before they baked it. And then it would conclude with a Passover meal, and they would recite uh, the, the saving work of God. And this would be impressed, particularly noted in the passage, Upon the children. And this would be how faith would mature within the congregation of Israel. It would strengthen mom and dad and grandma and grandpa as they remembered, but it would cause the eyes of the children to sparkle. And you see, this is the power of memorial in our lives is every week, We come together and we memorialize the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Each week, since the first century, we follow the ancient liturgical practices built on synagogue, built on temple, which memorializes God's saving activity in our lives. We stand in this same line of memorializing. As those congregations who practice the church year, Advent and Christmas and Epiphany and Lent and Easter and Pentecost and and Reformation Day, all of these things are memorialized and they are intended to to have our eyes to glisten and to sparkle and have the images of Christmas to reflect in our eyes as memorials to cause us to stop and to remember and to talk about it. A communion, we know, is a memorial. It's the extension of Passover. It is the Passover meal. The New Covenant Passover meal continued From this time until the end of the ages, it shall always be. Baptism, when we see the baptism, it too is a memorial. We tell our children, as they see the bread and the cup, as they see another one baptized, we we might lean over and say, I remember when you were baptized. Oh, would you tell me more? Yeah, wait till we get home. I'll tell you about it. Or maybe it's someone who who sees the bread and the cup and they're they're just again reminded of when they were saved, when they came to faith. And we must be faithful, you see, in building these altars in the field all over our lives, memorials, This is the commandment. It's the way faith matures. And then let us be careful to note that faith matures thirdly through community because in verse 3, Moses says to the people, not just to one person and not you do this only in your family. Yes, you're going to do it in your family, but in the context of the people. The people. Community. It's why the writer of the Hebrews will say, Do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. And all the more as we see the day approaching, the day of of judgment. The early church after Pentecost immediately began to gather together in assembly. Why? Because this is what, what we do. This is the commandment of God. All the way back from the Exodus, we gather The children of Israel, the children of God, gather. And then we come off into our homes and we practice individually, privately, and as families, that which we have learned in community. You know, I've had people to tell me, they would say, you know, I stopped going to church because I got hurt. And so and so hurt me and, and you know, ter- we say things that we shouldn't say in church to each other. And then we forgive. And then we learn how to be forgiven. A great part of Paul's epistles is taken up with teaching the people living in community how to forgive each other. Or teaching the elders and the deacons, be patient. Or the pastors, especially the pastors, be patient in your teaching. Because in community is where we learn how to put into action these principles and truths that God tells us to live, and then we live them out in our families. Community. And then move all the way down to verse 14, and now we come into the family. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? Now we move uh, especially to the family, and we see that faith matures where there is a mentor. That's the fourth step in the process. Now, generally the mentor is you, is a parent or or your, collectively your parents or a family member. How many of you here today first heard the name Jesus in your home or from one of your parents or a family member? Raise your hand if it's so. That's that percentage is probably about 90% of the congregation, which is about the same as every congregation I've ever pastored. And everyone, every Christian group where I've ever asked that, that question. And that is because this is God's plan. This is one of the steps. We are mentored And generally, our our mentors are family. But sometimes, if we haven't had the privileges of a Christian home, the mentor could be a coach or a teacher or an evangelist or a preacher or someone on a streetcar or a taxi cab or a neighbor or someone who cares and intervenes in our lives and comes to us and shares the gospel or a missionary. And beyond a mentor there comes then a process, a step in the process, which I call the dialectic. And that is number five. It's also in verse 14. When in time to come, your son asks. Now this is very interesting. The son has been in community. He has seen the memorials. He's seen the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's, He's watched the Passover. He's taken part in these things. He's seen all of this around him. He's understood now the concept, or at least he's watched the concept of sacrifice, of of consecration. And this is not about an age. It's about the Holy Spirit now at work in this child of the covenant of grace. And the child says to his father, in this case, his mentor... Now what does all this mean, Dad? And the next, and the response of his father, now that's the dialectic. Those viewer teachers may recognize the concept of Socratic method of teaching through question and answers. It was also a rabbinical method. It was a method that Jesus also used. A statement is made, a counter is made, and then a new, uh, fresh, uh, revised statement is made, and that is Socratic method of teaching. And here, the statement that is made is all of these steps in faith are made before the child, and somewhere in this child's life, he comes to point two of the Socratic method. W- what does this mean? And now, the response. And the response is a powerful, there's no more powerful step in human responsibility in response to God's saving work. It is testimony. The father responds to the son and he says, by his strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Egypt. And he goes on and look down what he says in verse 15 and move down. He says, therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. He brought us. He includes himself in the people of Israel. And then he says, therefore, this, this is what I do. I entitled uh, this sermon, I Love to Tell the Story, because I think this is the heartbeat, the tenderloin, if you will, of the passage. How does faith mature? All of these things, the community of faith, the week-to-week church, the communion, the baptism, the church year, and then the Holy Spirit moving upon a child or moving upon an adult, moving upon your neighbor. The church is deposited here in a larger community of Monroe and Indian Trail and in Union County in Greater Charlotte and... The southeastern United States and the USA, that's where we are. And they're asking, what do you mean by these things that you say? You see, that's also the context. The context is not only the family of faith within the children of Israel, but it also now is going to become Israel within the world. Well, what does this mean? And now the answer. The great, the wonderful step in the process of how faith matures. Therefore, I. God came to me God saved me, and by a strong hand, Christ changed my life, son, my daughter. The Lord Jesus changed my life. And now all of the memorials and all of the Sabbaths and all of the community of faith, symbols, and signs, come home in the flesh and blood of the child's father or a friend, that mentor. When he or she says, God did this for me. And then the response is to transition. It started with divine supernatural activity and it ends with that. And the Father says, this shall be for you. This shall be for you. A mark on your hand and frontlets between your eyes. By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out. And now the child is, by faith, included in that. Out of Egypt is a strong phrase. There's been some books written out of Egypt. Anne Rice wrote one, a historical fiction about the childhood of Jesus. There was another book that was written about, called Out of Egypt, and it was about uh, the a Jewish family, it was a, uh, a book of reflections on the life of a little boy in a Jewish family who left Alexandria, Egypt during World War I. And it, and it allowed you to see what was life like for a child on the run, in exile, in Exodus. So it literally was following again the life of a Hebrew child, once again leaving Egypt, being run out, this time uh, by... Uh, the ravages of war out of Egypt. And you know what that says? It says that out of Egypt really is the context for how faith matures. Your story, the story of your journey right now is how faith matures in your life right now. We call that sanctification, how faith is growing in your life. And faith is growing in your life. God is getting you from the oppression where you were to the promised land through a journey. And the hard things and the difficult things in your life, whatever they are, and yes, the joys of your life, are all part of the journey. They're all part of the context of how God is leading you home. Now, I want to have a final word for the children because this passage is so much intended for children. And I want to tell the children, and uh, whether you're five or six or ten, maybe you could hear me to say God loves you and your mom and dad loves you and the pastors and the church loves you because God loves you. And everything is here to point you and remind you how much Jesus Christ loves you. And we want to point you to Jesus because Jesus says, let the children come to me. He loves you. And he wants you to come to him and believe in him and follow him. He he lived for you and he died for you. And you may not understand all of the meaning of everything around here now, but there'll come a time where you'll go to your mom or dad and say, now, what does all this mean? And they'll tell you. You know what they'll tell you? They'll say, here's what it means to me. And they will be doing exactly what God wants them to do. And that is how faith matures. Let's pray. Lord, bless this congregation and the seed of faith here that it may grow and that others who do not know you may come to know you and that as they ask the question, this church may be poised and ready to answer.